you still have your Bibles open there to Psalm 71, keep them open. If not, turn back. I titled the message this morning, Who is Like Unto Thee? I took my title from verse 19 of Psalm 71. Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who has done great things? O God, who is like unto thee? Now, who is like God? Who can even resemble God? Well, we already know the answer to the question, don't we? We already know the, the answer is no one. There's no one like God. God spoke in Isaiah 46, verse 9. He said, remember the former things of old, for I'm God and there is none else. I'm God and there's none like me. You know, that's one of the reasons we don't make symbols of God. An idol can't hold a candle to how glorious God is. And this question, who is like unto thee, is asked several different times in Scripture. And each time the question is asked, there's a subject, a specific attribute of God that's being talked about. Here in our text, the theme is God's righteous works. Who has done these righteous works like our God? Back up in verse 15. David says, my mouth shall show forth thy righteousness and thy salvation all the day. For I know not the numbers thereof. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. See, the one speaking here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that came and declared. Verse, uh, he, de- he declared thy wonders. Verse 17. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Christ came and declared God's wondrous works. Now, David and the rest of us, Eric, you, this afternoon, he'll go up there to Cottageville. We'll, we'll, we'll speak about God's wondrous works. We'll speak about his, his grace. We'll speak about his wonderful character. But only the Lord Jesus Christ declares them. We see all of those attributes. We see all of those works. Fulfilled in Christ. The Savior declares those wonderful works so that his people believe them. So that they see them. Now, there are too many of God's wondrous works to mention specifically. But let me just mention a few to kind of let you know what I'm talking about. God's election of a people. His works even before the foundation of the world. God's election of a people is a wonderful work. Almighty God, the Holy One. He chose to save guilty sinners. Sinners who have sinned against him, who have rebelled against him. He chose to save guilty sinners. That's a wonderful work, isn't it? And God's election of a people is declared in Christ. Now we preach it, don't we? We talk about it, but God's election of a people is declared in Christ. See, the Father first elected. He chose a Savior for his people. He chose his son to be the savior. And then he chose his people and put them all in Christ. Let me show you that over in Isaiah chapter 42. God's God's election of a savior, an election of a people, that's a wonderful work. That work guarantees the salvation of God's people because their salvation is all up to Christ to perform. Once the father chose his son to be the savior, now it's all up to the son and he can't fail to do what he purposed to do. Look at Isaiah 42, verse one. Behold my servant 
whom I uphold, mine elect. See, Christ is God's first elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I put my spirit upon him, he should bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He should not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged. Till he has set judgment in the earth, and the isles shall wait for his law. Now that's a wonderful work. Christ our Savior cannot fail. He cannot be discouraged. When the Father elected a Savior, he chose the right one, didn't he? He chose one who cannot fail to save his people from their sin. Then God's predestination. That's a wonderful word. And that predestination is declared. God's predestination of a people is seen for what it really is in Christ. You know, predestination does not have anything to do with the place. You know, God did not predestine some people to hell and some people to heaven. Predestination have anything to do with the place. Predestination all has to do with the person. It all has to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Father predestinated a people to be made just like his son. Now that's wonderful, isn't it? Let me show you that Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For, here's how we know that's true. Whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now that is a wonderful work. Can you think of anything more wonderful? And Almighty God predestinating you, sinful, fallen you, to be made just like his son. That's a wonderful work. Then God's adoption of sinners to be his children. That's a wonderful work. You know, the father could choose to adopt anybody he wants to. He's God. He can do what he will. And when he adopted people to be his children, you know who he adopted? The worst of the worst. He passed by the best. He passed by those self-righteous. And he chose the worst of the worst. And he adopted those children to make them his. He lifted them from the dunghill. And made them his children to sit at his table. And when God adopts a child. He also births that child into his family. So that they have his nature. Let me show you that in Ephesians chapter 1. You know why God adopts sinful men and women? Here's why. So that he can make them just like his son. Ephesians 1 verse 4. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, God's adoption of children, he chose sinners to be his children. That's a wonderful work. That's a wonderful work. And since we've been adopted into God's family, 
You know what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 to God's children? You've been adopted into his family. Whereby we can cry, Abba, Father. That's your right to, to call the God of heaven and earth your Father. To cry unto him, Abba, Father. Now that's a tender cry. It's like crying, Daddy, Daddy, or Papa, Papa. That's what uh, I am to my grandson, Papa. He's trying to learn to say Papa. And a lot of times it comes out, Abba. Boy, don't you know Papa answers to that every time. It's a sweet, sweet, it's a tender call. That cry of tenderness, a tender love, a tender need, a, a, ten, a, a tender relationship between a father and a child, that's a relationship you have with God Almighty. If you're his child, can you think of anything more wonderful than that? I mean, that is just so soul thrilling to be able to have that tender relationship with our heavenly father. Then how about the work of redemption from our sin? That's a wonderful work, being redeemed from our sin. And redemption it's declared, it's seen, it's understood only when we see Christ. See, our sin has put a price on our head. It's a price that we cannot pay to God's justice. God's justice demands that price be paid. But we can't pay the price. We can't pay that price, that debt that we owe to God. So you know what God did? He sent his son to pay the price. The debt is owed to God and God's the one who paid it. And here's how he paid it. With the blood of his only begotten son. His beloved son. Now that's a wonderful work. I mean it would be wonderful enough if God took out his wallet and paid the price, wouldn't it? But he slaughtered his son to pay the price his people owed. That's a wonderful work. That makes us just Speechless, doesn't it? In awe and wonder. And all of those works, everything God does is done in righteousness. David says back here in our text, Psalm 71, in verse 16, I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. You know, man's so-called righteousness is not even worth mentioning, is it? They're, they're rags of righteousness. They're rags defiled with sin. But everything that God does is righteous. When God adopted his children into his family, he made it right to do it by the death of his son. When God marked his people, their debt, he marked it as paid in full. He was right to do it. It's righteous because he paid the price with the blood of his son. When God justified his people, he made it right to say that they're, they're without sin. His son put their sin away. He made it right to do it. And of all of God's works, all the works that he has done. I'll tell you what God's greatest work is. It's his work of salvation. His work of redeeming his people. Now that's an amazing work. Amazing work. Look over at Psalm 111. Everything God does, all of his works, they're wonderful. They're righteous. But all of God's works, his works of providence, all his works from all of eternity are all put together to accomplish one work his work of redemption here in, in Psalm 111 the psalmist talks about God's works plural 
in, let me find my plate, verse 4, he said he has made his wonderful works to be remembered. In verse 6, he said he has showed his people the power of his works. In verse 7, he said the works of his hand are verity and judgment. In verse 2, he says the works of the Lord are great, sought out of all them that have pleasure therein. That's all God's works, the different acts of God. But all those things are put together to accomplish one, one work. Verse three, his work. Now he's talking about a singular work, his work, his greatest work is honorable and glorious and his righteousness endureth forever. Here the psalmist talks about God's work, his work of redemption, his work of salvation. And that work is done in righteousness. Now, that's not just good doctrine. Now, I mean, if God's God, it has to be done in righteousness. It has to be holy and right, doesn't it? But that's also given to us for the comfort of God's people. If his work is done in righteousness, it's right. It can never be undone. It can never be lost. It can never be taken away because God made it right that his people be saved from their sins. It's just. Now, that's a wonderful work. Now, who are you going to compare that to? Huh? Well, no man-made idol can do that, can they? No, they need you to do the work for them. They got no hands but your hands. No feet but your feet. No mouth but your mouth. No, no arms but your arms. They need you to do all the work for them. The true and living God, he's done all the work for his people. He did it for them. And it's right. It's right. All right, now look back at Exodus chapter 15. Here's another time this question is asked there's none like God in his praise Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 who is like unto thee O Lord among the gods who is like thee glorious in holiness fearful in praises doing wonders now that phrase there, fearful in praises, means that God's people praise him in astonishment. It's just astonishing what God's done. And it also means in reverence and fear. That's not fear like God's going to strike us down if we don't praise him well enough. It's this fear. We're afraid not to trust him or not to praise him. It's a, just astonishment. Now this is part of Moses' song of, of praise. After the Lord delivered Israel through the Red Sea. And he destroyed Pharaoh and his army in the very same place in the Red Sea. And remember what happened before that. Israel had gone out from, from Egypt and how, now here they are at the Red Sea. And they're trapped in that the little peninsula. They're trapped between the Red Sea on one hand and Pharaoh's army. The mightiest army in the world. They're trapped. And they thought they were goners for sure. I mean, there's no escape. The people were so afraid. And what did Moses tell the people? Now just be still. Just be still. And see the salvation of the Lord. And Lord opened that sea up. And Israel went through on dry land. Every last one of them went through on dry land. There was a fiery pillar behind them that kept Pharaoh and his army from coming in. And once Israel got all the way across, that pillar lifted. And Pharaoh said, it's wide open. Boys, let's go get them. And they went down in there and God brought those waves. 
those walls come in and drowned every last one of them. Now, just a few days ago, this was the terror of the world. This is what kept Israel in bondage, this mighty army. And now they're standing there and every last one of them is dead. Not one man survived. Not one. They're free. Everything they're afraid of is dead. And Moses sang this song of deliverance. And the people stood there in astonishment. Astonishment. They walked through the sea on dry ground. And God killed all their, all their enemy without them ever having fire shot. They just praised God in astonishment. And part of this praise, Moses said, God is glorious in his holiness. His holiness. I know we think of that word as, as sinlessness, being without sin. It's true. But I looked that word up and it means apartness. Apartness. God is apart from sinful man. He's separate. He's the opposite of sinful man. He's perfect. There's no fault in him. There's not even any imperfection in him. What are the angels who fly around God's throne? What do they cry? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He's of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. Holiness, that's God's chief attribute. Everything God does must be holy. Yes, God is love, but his love must be shown in a holy fashion. Yes, God is gracious. He's merciful. But when God's gracious, he must be holy when he does it. He has to make it right for him to do it. And holiness. Now that's apart from you and me. That's the opposite of you and me. That's called the beauty of the Lord. That tells you something about us, doesn't it? What is the opposite of us? That's what beauty is. Beauty is the beauty of the Lord. God's greatest glory is he found a way to be merciful to sinners and still be holy when he does it. And he does it by the sacrifice of Christ. Now here's something that will make God's people worship him, praise him in astonishment. The way the Father delivered his people from condemnation, the condemnation their sin deserves, you know how he did it? He did it by condemning his own son. In our place. The father gave his son the justice. And the punishment that the sin of his elect deserves. So that the father could deliver his his people. In mercy and grace. And be right to do it. Because their sin has been already been paid for. The father took that sinful people. And he made them holy. He made them just like his son. Now, if that doesn't make your heart burst with praise, just astonishment and praise, being thankful to God, I'm afraid that means you have a dead heart. I'm afraid that's what that means. God's beauty is his holiness. He found a way to redeem his people and be holy to do it. Make his people just like his son. None like him. Nobody else does that. Every other idol... Just ignores your sin. It's still there, but we'll just ignore it. Our God, he makes his people what he accepts. Makes them holy. All right, now look at Psalm 35. Here's the third time this question is asked. There's none like God in who he saves. Not just how he saves, but who he saves. 
Psalm 35, verse 10. All my bones shall say from my innermost being, Lord, who is like unto thee, which delivers the poor from him that is too strong for him, yea, the poor and the needy from him that spoileth him. Now, who's like our God and who he saves? You know, idols, don't they all save those that can help themselves? They help those that help themselves. Isn't that what you hear? Well, if I can help myself, my question is this, then why do I need the idol? If I can help myself, I'll just help myself. I don't need the idol to help me. That's not our God. There's none like him in who he saves. He'll not save those who think they can help themselves. No, he won't do it. He saves the poor and needy. God saves those who are so poor, they're spiritually bankrupt. It's not like they got a little bit of money, they got none. They're spiritually bankrupt. They don't have any goodness. None. They don't have any righteousness. They don't have anything that God wants. They don't have one blessed thing that God wants. There's no goodness in them. They have a debt and they can't pay that first penny that they owe to God. They're poor. Now those are the people that God saves. God saves those people by paying the debt for them. Those people saying Jesus paid it all. All the debt I owe. He paid I couldn't pay anything. He paid it all. They're poor and they're needy. That word needy means they're the lowest, lowest class. They can't get any lower. But that's who God saves. Those that can't get any lower. He delivers the poor and needy. They're so low, other sinners look down on them. But God saves them in condescending grace. He reaches way, way down there to the bottom and he pulls them up, sets them at his table. That's condescending grace. He saves the poor and the needy. And he saves the weak. He saves those who are so weak they can't move a muscle to help God save them. That's what our lesson was about this morning. He saved that man who was paralyzed. But that's the only people God will save. If you got something that you can you know, give God to help God out, He won't save you. If you've got some good works, some, some morality, some righteousness that you can contribute to this thing, He won't save you. The Lord only saves sinners who are so weak they can't do one thing for Him. Now I got good news for you. If you need Christ to do all of the saving for you, He will. He will. God will save every sinner if he can get all the glory for saving. Every one of them. Now, do you need Christ to do all the saving for you? Come to him. He came to save sinners. He'll deliver us. He delivers his people from the enemies that are too strong for us. Well, every enemy is too strong for me. How about you? The law, that's too strong for us, isn't it? The law is in, in full effect, in full power. The law must be obeyed if we would be in God's presence. What? Too strong for me. I can't obey any of it. Well, Christ came and he delivered his people from that stronghold of the law. He kept the law. He obeyed it. And then he satisfied the law's last demand when he died for the sin of his people. 
Christ took the law out of his way, out of the way of his people. Don't look to the law as a way that you can come to God. Don't look to the law as a way you can clean yourself up a little bit and then you can come to God. Christ took the law out of the way so that his people can go straight to Christ for mercy and grace and salvation. You go to him, he'll deliver you. If you go to the law, you won't be delivered, will you? Then how about God's justice? Oh, God's justice is too strong for us. It'd crush us. But Christ came and he delivered his people from God's justice. He satisfied God's justice by dying as a substitute for his people. Justice is satisfied. My friend, if Christ died for you, don't be looking behind your back, see if the law is chasing you, and don't look at the law and seeing what the law is requiring of you. God's justice is not looking for you. If Christ died for you, it's satisfied. Don't hide in fear. Go to Christ for mercy. See, he's the one that delivers us from God's justice. And then there's Satan. See, he's an enemy. Now, he's a real enemy. He's too strong for us. But Christ delivered his people from Satan's power, didn't he? He crushed Satan's head at Calvary. When Christ died, he shed his blood to put away the sin of his people. He took away Satan's power to accuse. Now, he'll still accuse. He's the accuser of the brother. That's his name, right? That's what he's called. But he can't make any charge stick against God's people. Christ took that power away. His blood took their sin away. And then here's a big enemy. My old man. Now, that old man, too strong for us, isn't he? We can't defeat him. If you don't believe me, just in the next two seconds, try not to see him. We can't defeat him, can we? No, we can't hush him up. We can't make him quit yelling in our ear, you better start flying right. You better you better start doing right. Now God's going to get you if you don't do right. Why? You're not being blessed because you're not keeping the law well enough. You start keeping a few laws and maybe God will heal your prayer. You can't shut him up. You can't shut him up. But Christ has delivered his people from that old man by giving us a new man. That new man reigns. In the heart of every believer, there's two distinct opposite natures. There's the nature of the flesh that we're born with. It's sinful, rotten, dead flesh, and that's all it ever will be. God's not going to change flesh. He's going to put it in the ground. God has caused in the hearts of his people to be born a new man. That's what the new birth is all about. It's the birth of a new man. A new nature. And those two natures live inside every believer. That's the civil war. That's the struggle that we feel within that old man, that new man warring and lusting against one another. That's in the heart of every believer. And we cry with the Apostle Paul, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? How in this world am I ever going to get rid of this old man? He feels like he's beating me every day. Every day. But he's not. If you have a new man in you, I promise you that new man's reigning. Now don't 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 get scared on me. Don't think, well, I must not be a believer because it feels to me like that old man's reigning. All I ever do is see him. Let me show you how the new man reigns. You know how that new man reigns? Oh, now he ain't shut up the old man. 
He hasn't, hasn't diminished the power of the old man. Here's how the new man reigns. Now you believe what you once could not believe. Have you been, have you been in that situation? You try to make yourself believe. And now you believe what you used to not be able to believe. Now you love what you used to not love before. Used to be the gospel was the most boring thing in this world to you. Now you love it. What happened? There's a new man that reigns. And try as that old man might, he can't make you not believe. Can he? That's the new man reigning. And he's going to reign until this flesh gets put in the ground and God calls the new man home. Now that's a wonderful word. Who is like God? Who else can do something? None. None. Then there's none like God in his faithfulness. Look at Psalm 89. Psalm 89 verse 8. O Lord God of hosts, who is a strong Lord like unto thee, or to thy faithfulness round about? Now who's a faithful like our God? Every idol man's ever come up with, they are not faithful. They're only as faithful as their worshipers. They'll be faithful to you as long as you're faithful to them. If you quit being faithful, they will too. That's an idol. God's people know nothing of that. God's people saying, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. God is faithful to save his people. He promised he'd do it and he's faithful. He's faithful to them. He's so faithful he promised, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Never. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Before time began, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit entered into a covenant. We call it the covenant of grace. It's God's covenant, his promise to save his people by the doing and dying of his son. That's a promise made by God who cannot lie. He'll be faithful to his promise. You can rest assured in it. He's faithful. And he'll save his people by his faithfulness and he'll keep his people by his faithfulness. Not our faithfulness, his. See, God's people are saved. We're saved by grace through faith. Through faith, that's how we receive. That's how we see Christ. But we're saved by the faithfulness of Christ. Of Christ. Great is his faithfulness. We won't turn to these scriptures for time's sake. Let me just read them to you. Romans 3, verse 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, upon all, unto all, and upon all them that believe. Philippians 3 9, and Paul says, My desires be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. God's people are made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ. By the faithfulness of Christ to do everything it took to obey the law for them, to suffer and die for their sin, to put their sin away, we're made the righteousness of God in him by his faithfulness to accomplish our righteousness. Galatians 2, 16 says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of of Christ, and not by our works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
Sinners are justified by the faithfulness of Christ to justify his people, to make them without sin by putting their sin away with his precious blood. And we're justified by faith in Christ, by the faith that he gives us to believe him and rest him, trust him to be our righteousness, trust him to be our wisdom, wisdom, our righteousness, our justification and our sanctification. And then Ephesians 3.12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. By the faith of him. Now that puts away this business that you, you're not being faithful enough, you're not being good enough so God won't hear you. We have boldness and access, confidence to come to God in prayer by the faith of him. By the faith of Christ. The only way we can have confidence to come before Almighty God in prayer is the faithfulness of Christ that he did everything it took to make me accepted. Accepted in the beloved. Not accepted in anything about me, accepted in the beloved. In his faithfulness to do everything that God required. And if I come to God begging for mercy for Christ's sake, do you know I can have confidence? God will hear me for Christ's sake. Won't he? He'll forgive me for Christ's sake. Would God slaughter his son and shed his blood and then not forgive sin for his blood's sake, for his sacrifice's sake? Of course not. I can have confidence coming begging for Christ's sake, begging for mercy for Christ's sake. Now, I can't have any confidence. Lord, you know, hear me because I preached this week, because I studied this week, because I prayed this week, because I lied less this week, because I did. I can't have any confidence in myself. But if I come pleading Christ's name, pleading his merit, pleading his blood, I can have confidence the Father will hear me. Now, find me another God like that. Who's like him in his faithfulness? <laughs> no other idol can do that. And then here's the last thing. Look in Micah chapter 7. Micah is right between Jonah and Nahum. Micah chapter 7. There's none like God in his salvation. Micah 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee, that pardoneth iniquity, and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. And when... Thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth to Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. Now this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. This is what he's going to do for his people when he comes. And if you're a guilty sinner, this is a soul-thrilling promise. This is something we can hang on to. There is none like our God how he pardons iniquity. You know, it was the sin of Israel, the sin of idolatry that at the time of, of Micah that put them into bondage at that time. It was their sin that put them in bondage. But it's God's pardoning mercy that's going to set them free. They've been carried, carried away or away from Jerusalem, away from Israel, but it's God's pardoning mercy that's going to bring them back home. Well, it's our sin that's put us in bondage to sin and to the law. 
Our sin has put us in bondage to death. You know, we're in bondage to death. You have to do eventually what death says, don't you? We're going to die. And you can't stop it from happening. Take care of yourself all you want. Eat right all you want. Exercise all you want. And by all means, do all that stuff. You'll feel better while you're here. But death's coming. We're in bondage to it. We have to die because of our sin. But we're saved by God's pardoning mercy. You know, in our day, we've cheapened this word pardon. A governor or a president, you know, pardons one of their cronies, been convicted of a crime there in jail, and the the president, the, the governor pardons him so, so they can be set free. They say, well, your punishment's enough. You know, you're, you're guilty, but we're just going to set you free. That's not how God pardons him. This word pardon, it means to lift up and carry away. Christ made his people not guilty. That's why God pardons his people because Christ made them not guilty. He lifted the sin of his people off of them and he took it into his own body upon the tree. He was made sin for his people. He put it on him just like that scapegoat of old. Remember the scapegoat, the high priest would lay his hands on the head of that scapegoat and confess the sin of the people. Their sin was symbolically transferred to that goat and then a fit man would carry that goat, lead that goat out into the wilderness and leave it there. Land uninhabited. Never saw that goat again. That's a picture of what Christ has done for his people. He took their sin away from them. Put it on himself and he carried it away. It'll never be seen again. You know why? Not because it's hidden out in the desert. Because his blood put it away. It'll never be seen again. God pardons his people because there's nothing to charge them with. Christ took their sin away. And Micah tells us here God will pass by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. You know why God passes by the transgression of his people? Because Christ put that transgression away. He obeyed the law for his people. There's no, trans, there's no transgression left to be charged to their account. He shed his blood to put it away. And just like that first Passover, God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. I'll pass over your transgression. I won't punish it a second time. The blood tells me it's been punished already. The blood of Christ tells me it's been punished. I'll pass over you. There's no need to punish you if Christ has died in your place. He passes over the transgression of his people because Christ suffered for us. It's always because of the blood of Christ. It's always because of the blood of God's Son. Now who's like our God? Who else would sacrifice their darling son to put your sin away? None but God. There's none like him, is there? There's none like him. Oh, I pray God will give us faith to trust him. He's worthy, isn't he? All right, let's bow together. Our Father, human words can't be found to praise you and thank you as you ought to be praised, as you ought to be thanked. But Father, we do thank you. We do praise your matchless name. 
Father, thank you for the full and free redemption found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your mercy and your grace to the most undeserving, the weakest, the poor, the needy, the helpless. Father, how we thank you. And Father, I thank you for this time that you've given us together to worship you and to read and study your word. Father, I beg of you that you would send your word forth in power to reach the hearts of each one of us here this morning, that you might enable us to leave here believing in and trusting in and resting in Christ our Savior. Father, it's for his sake and for his glory we pray. Amen. All right, Sean.